0: Hello and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert, professor of law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is David P. Weber, professor of law at Creighton University School of Law. We will discuss his article, Athletes in Transit, Why the Game is Different in Sports, and the Visas Should Be Too, which will be published in the Tulane Law Review. So welcome to the show, David.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad that uh, Victoria recommended your paper to me. It was uh, really interesting and timely uh, on a subject that I frankly know know very little about, so I was delighted to read it and, and learn a little something. <laughs> um. <clears throat> So by way of, of beginning our conversation, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about immigration and immigration specifically in the sports context. Um, so I think there's kind of a consensus that immigration is is usually a net benefit, including to domestic uh, employees. Um, is that true when it comes to, to professional and amateur sports?
1: Yes. Uh, to answer your question, yes. You know, when we talk about athlete immigration, we're going to have to dance around a little bit pre-COVID and post-COVID because obviously COVID changed many different things. But generally speaking, you're right, both in the athletic sense and in the economic sense in general, immigration is going to be a net benefit for the receiving country. So for example, high-skilled earners by far have the greatest net economic benefit to the receiving country just because They're going to come in already with their human capital fully developed. They're going to be earning at a high level, paying taxes at a high level, not going to take advantage of any or at least very little public benefits. So they're going to generally put a lot into the system. And that is going to hold true almost all the way down the socioeconomic scale until you get to the the very lowest uh, individuals who have very low skill uh, or training. And those are going to be the ones who perhaps will directly compete with domestic Individuals, and so that's where you're going to see some, perhaps, supplementary types of jobs um, rather than complementary. Now, with with athletics, you might think that that is rife for foreigners supplementing domestic-based players because most sports have fixed roster spots, and so they have X numbers that they can carry on the team at any given time, and so it's the quintessential zero-sum game. That's true. But when you look at U.S. sports in particular, if you look at, I'll call them the big five, but it's you know, the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, NFL, NHL, and then Major League Soccer. Other than the NFL, which because of its unique nature in, in U.S. sports is very U.S. heavy, all the other ones have had long traditions of foreign athletes coming over and doing very well. You look at arguably one of the best players in the NBA this year, Giannis, is, is a Greek national. You, you look back to the, arguably the greatest hockey player of all time, Wayne Gretzky, Canadian. And so you have Major League Baseball rosters that are populated with athletes from Central and South America. Uh, and it's a very common thing to see these foreigners coming over. And certainly they are taking roster spots, but generally everyone is happy. And I say everyone, I mean everyone. The fans are happy because they want to have an athlete who can come over and you know be in the top three in home runs and also be a starting pitcher at the all-star level. Right? That's that's a very rare skill set. the The owners are going to be happy because they're going to be able to tap into foreign markets, and that's going to go along with the league as well. Who they now see global expansion as the next big thing. I uh, look at Yao Ming, and then you know Jeremy Lin, the Lin Sanity, to some extent as as potentially opening up growth uh, in the Far East, especially that Chinese market, which is so large for the NBA. And then you might say, well, what about the players themselves? Don't they care or worry? that they're potentially being replaced. And the long and short of it is the economics are in favor of having additional foreign players, because most of these leagues are gonna have league minimums anyway. So you can't push down the cost of labor below a certain price. And the foreign athletes that they're bringing over are actually going in the opposite direction. They're pushing up the ceiling. And so when that ceiling is raised, it's that rising tide lifts all boats arguments. And so you see a really unique era where, at least in the United States, there's a lot of overlapping interests that are going to align with bringing in more domestic athletes. In some of the countries where soccer uh, or football is, is the prime sport, there's a little bit of resistance to that. For example, in the UK, they have a homegrown rule and they protect a certain number of roster spots for their domestic players. But there, they, the discussion really is, how do we protect our national team in our international competition? So if we're in the World Cup, how do we make sure that we have enough tier one English players who are being developed? Whereas you come to the United States, we don't really have that issue. And you know it's a little bit ethnocentric, but we see ourselves as you know the NFL is the best competition in the world, Major League Baseball, the best competition in the world. And so we have our own variety of that international competition already taking place here. So we don't have some of those same external constraints that some of these other countries are dealing with.
0: Well, so if it's good for sports, and as I understand it, both professional and amateur sports to be bringing in athletes from foreign countries, both to compete on teams and also to participate in, in competitions in the United States, how do we accomplish that? I mean, obviously, they're going to need visas to come into the country. What kind of visas can they use? What, what are their options?
1: So for professional athletes, you're absolutely right. It it is a question of how do they get in? How do they stay in? And then what happens at the end of that term? So for professional athletes, there are really a handful of of good options. And I'm thinking largely team-based sports, but there are some additional opportunities for individual sports as well that might be available to golfers and tennis players or race car drivers that might not be available to a team sport where you're getting a salary in the United States. So the most common one and the one that most professional athletes will start with is a a P1A. Uh, So the the P visa, the easiest way to think about it is these are very good athletes. But there's also another category called the O visa. And the easiest way to think of the O visa is outstanding. When you think of the O visa, and these are not, well, the P visa is generally for athletes, but the O visa is an overarching visa for world-class talent in the United States. It's available to, to multiple different types of individuals. And it was designed with the Nobel laureate in mind. So if you are at that level where you are one of the few at the very top of your game, you're likely to qualify for that O type of visa and be granted entry. Um, so that's pretty straightforward. The P visa is for that next tier down. You might be a starting third baseman uh, or a starting forward on, on the first line of your NHL team or a forward striker, defender, whatever it might be in MLS. And so for those individuals, really the cutoff is, do you have a certain level of international renown, or are you a part of a professional league that meets certain minimum qualifications with, with revenue standards, and you're on that roster, you've been given that contract by that team? In those situations, you're very likely going to be granted that P visa and be allowed to come into the country. And for the most part, we haven't had too many issues with individuals being denied visas if they are in one of our big five sports. It's where you have some of the more ancillary sports that you're going to start to see problems or people even related to sports, such as coaches, for example. Should they be able to, if you were a former star athlete, should that then translate to you being entitled to a coach visa where it's a different skill set?
0: So what kind of problems arise? Like, I mean, if an athlete is looking to come either join a U.S.-based team or participate in a competition in the United States – like, when do issues come up and can they be resolved? And if so, how would you go about resolving them? So,
1: I would, I would say that issues really arose during, during the prior administration. Um, since about 2005 or six, when the Compete Act was passed to expand the scope of, of P visas to make it a little bit easier for athletes to gain entry with their supporting crew, it's been relatively uneventful. There was a pretty standard process. You were able to show through a list of designated categories whether or not the athlete you represented had that level of renown, that level of fame or success to pass. With the last administration, they really started to tighten the criteria in, in trying to assess what was going to be considered acceptable means of proof uh, to show, one, that they had that level of renown, and then, two, there's a, there's a two-part test that the, the Uh, USCIS was using in assessing these applications. One, are you statutorily eligible? Did you meet the initial qualifications? And then two, if you do, should you still be granted that visa more or less as a matter of discretion? Because do we feel like you've you've met that overall level of renown or or success that we're looking for? And so some of the different evidentiary classifications or, or types of proof that you can enter into the record to show that you do or do not meet this might be things like press clippings, um, features on uh, internet, on television, social media, etc. But the last two to three years, there have been cases where individuals were being denied, even though they had been featured in ESPN um, or or on television about that. Individuals who had participated at the NCAA level here in the United States, multiple top 10 finishes, then go out and and compete at a world type event in their home country or, or in Europe or the Far East top five finishes, and that was held to be insufficient. Uh, There was a case, it was a Japanese uh, gymnast, I believe, um, who competed, and he was on his national team, and that national team qualified for silver at Worlds. And the court said, well, it wasn't sufficient to show that he himself was at that internationally renowned level, even though he himself had qualified for that national team. So everything was looked at under a microscope these last couple of years, and, and the rates of denials had gone up dramatically. So in the short term, that's problematic because if, if the faucet is high-quality athletic talent coming to the United States, for a while, we maybe didn't close it off all the way, but we certainly tightened it up a little bit. And that's a little bit interesting when you think about last spring when, when COVID hit and everything shut down, and, and including the borders especially, one of the very first exceptions to come back to allow international travel was for athletes, was to allow those NBA players to travel back to get in the bubble and to allow golfers to come back in the United States to start competing in some of those outdoor type events. So on the one hand, we have some of these other ancillary sports where, where the spigot really is being turned off. And then on the other hand, there's a recognition that, you know, especially during COVID, people needed entertainment options and sport was one of the best. So there's that balance going forward but that was one of the, the initial challenges and, and it's still ongoing it'll be it's too early to tell right now how the new administration will start to adjudicate some of these issues um, my, my hunch my guess is that it will be a reversion back to uh, pre-president Trump era where they they looked at that just the way they had for the last 10 12 years um, but until that plays out we don't know um, and that's on the professional side you know on the on the amateur side, we have a really interesting debate coming up because we have a potential overhaul of NCAA rules allowing compensation to these amateurs based on their name, image, and likeness. And that's that's all well and, well and good. Uh, there's a Supreme Court case right now, the Alston case, where the court is looking at, one, first of all, should we give them additional monies up to the cost of their educational component? And then two, should it be a true pay-for-play type of system, which is, is where some people think we're heading. and not not so sure about that yet. But if we do go to a system where it's, it's a, a middle ground type of system where we allow these college athletes to earn money based on name, image, and likeness, that will be really good for everybody who's able to work in the country and do those kinds of endorsement opportunities most of the foreign athletes uh, that are going to be governed by those rules are going to be in the NCAA. They're going to be on a student visa, an F visa. And that F visa contains some very significant limitations on employment opportunities. And so as a a result, we might have two classes of, of college athlete, one who is able to receive tremendous amounts of endorsements based on NIL and another who is doing the same quote, job, unquote, who isn't able to collect on anything, not as a matter of labor principles, but as a matter of immigration law.
0: That seems so strange because, I mean, even if you grant the idea that we want to use immigration policy to protect domestic workers from foreign competition, which, you know, it's troubling or troublesome in its own right, but even if you take the premise for granted, it seems like, it's impossible to compete with somebody else's use of their own name, image, or likeness.
1: Right. And that, that's absolutely true. You, you take it, for example, uh, an individual at, at Gonzaga, Jalen Suggs, who is, you know, a one and done type of player who will probably be a top five pick in the NBA draft. There's only one of him, right? So he's he the only one who has the right to to capitalize on that product. Now, On the flip side, there are only so many endorsement dollars out there, so they're they're, they're competing for a diminishing amount of endorsement dollars that are there. But the real problem is immigration has never been nimble in the United States. We set a policy in place and then we keep that for decades until it gets so bad that we're forced to enact some sort of change. And so when the current visas were drafted for students, it was fine because we didn't have... The potential for student athletes to earn money. So it was just one blanket set of rules for all student visa holders that were gonna govern all types of jobs. So whether or not that's you going to do an internship with, with Amazon or Google, or an individual who's just trying to get a job as a side hustle at a restaurant down the road. But the idea was all F visa student holders will be treated the same. And now we see some significant money thrown in the mix for NIL rights and, It's sort of untenable to suggest that we can allow domestic-based athletes to capitalize and not expect unintended consequences with regard to foreign athletes and their decision either to come to the United States or simply forego that and look for other opportunities.
0: So one thing I was wondering is when it comes to people coming in as amateur athletes in an educational setting... Are they treated for immigration purposes the same as any other students or are there kind of athletic specific provisions that might make it easier or maybe even more difficult for them to get a visa?
1: So they're going to be treated the same. They're going to go through their same international office and they're going to get their F1 visa and they're, they have to go through the SEVIS process of you know going through and getting all that information put into the system. If they leave the country and they need to get that pre-approval to come back in, it's going to be treated the same as with it. Any other F visa student. So, someone studying English in the humanities department will be treated the same as the starting quarterback on the football. That's a bad example because the starting quarterback is likely not a foreigner, Um, but maybe the starting center on the basketball team.
0: What should the standards be, especially for professional? Athletes. I mean, as a kind of a layperson with respect to immigration law, it kind of seems to me like, I mean, if you're being offered a contract to play on a professional sports team, or you're like, in the competition roster for a professional sporting event, I mean, shouldn't that be kind of ipsy facto, like, you're a professional athlete, and you should be able to, am I missing something?
1: I don't think so. Um, and that's one of the points that I raised too. Is there the potential for abuse? Maybe you have a rich, great uncle who owns a professional sports team. And this is his way of, of getting you immigration status in the country by, by giving you a professional contract. Theoretically, it's possible. Realistically, very improbable. So I, I think that for our major sports leagues, where, where you have professional teams and you have such intense competition for roster spots, teams are going to act in their own best interest. And so it should go without saying that if you're awarded a contract at that professional level, that should suffice, at least for that P visa, right? You might not be that outstanding all-star yet, but you should at least be able to come in and work in that fashion. Where it becomes a little bit more difficult to draw the line is the more marginal player. So maybe you're a player who's a journeyman who bounces between the minors and the majors, right? Or or maybe not even bouncing between. Maybe you're going to start out in the minor leagues. Is that the kind of individual then who should be entitled? Or if you're in an individual sport, right, where you don't have the benefit of of being given a contract, but you're a golfer and you want to come over and participate in the PGA Tour. The fact that you have your card to play on the PGA, in my mind, should be sufficient, right? Rather than having a, a government official who's trying to assess the quality of your application based on what they see is the paper record, how many awards that you've won, how many times you've been featured in the press. What kind of press was it? Was it? There was a recent case where it was you know, one of the deciding factors was it was online press rather than print press, and so they thought that wasn't as reliable, even though that tends to ignore the modern trend in how people consume their news. A way to get around that, uh, especially so for, for the major sports, it, it's easier uh, because there are more types of restrictions in terms of just those institutions themselves as to who they allow to come and compete. But for some of the differing sports where maybe they're more nascent, think MMA or jiu-jitsu or some of these mixed martial arts where you're going to have different unifying bodies, different international associations who each claim to be in charge of all of that, different ranking systems, different weight classes, different belts, all sorts of different things like that, where it becomes difficult for there to be one overarching body like a FIFA or a FIBA to come in and say, yeah, these people have met that standard. But nevertheless, they might be the world's number one MMA or jiu-jitsu fighter. And so how do you have an adjudicator handle that? And it seems to me that what you could try to do is is somewhat of the equivalent that we see just by having a league give somebody a contract. If there's a tournament in the United States and they want to host this athlete, that should be, I think, presumptive evidence that the athlete is of that quality so if they've been invited well let's just flip the presumption then to the government and say well no even though you've been invited we don't think that that's sufficient right but in immigration law the presumption is, is almost never with the government it's it's a deck where it's it's designed to make it difficult for you to gain initial access and that hasn't even touched on the issue uh, perhaps one of the more esoteric ones but certainly interesting ones of e-athletes where do they fall within the, this gambit are they are they athletes? Are they just really good at what they do, like world-class chess players? When I when I teach my sports law class, I get a very vociferous debate on both sides as to whether or not an e-gamer is an athlete.
0: So with respect to these kinds of individual sports where people want to come from foreign countries and compete in competitions in the United States, why can't they just come on like a tourist visa? or something, right? I mean, you can certainly come to the United States on a tourist visa and go play golf, right? Or go play video games somewhere, right? You can go to Las Vegas and gamble, right? Well, why can't why can't they just come in as tourists and do all these activities that are both kind of professional and leisure activities?
1: So, they can with a significant caveat what we're talking about are the the B visa class, which is like a tourist visa or a short-term business visa that you know think of a CEO from a foreign company who's coming over here to to have high- level negotiations with its American counterpart. That's fine. They're not engaged in employment here in the United States, at least they're not deemed to be engaged in employment. So for the for that B visa class or the visa waiver program, which is it's it's equivalent for certain countries who are on the list and they can just enter the country for 90 days at a shot um, without having to go through a visa application process, those individual sport athletes can do that so long as the only money that they are making is the winnings based on their finishing position. So if all they're doing is coming over to play golf in a tournament and the only money they're going to make is the prize money, that's okay. Where they run into problems is whether or not they're doing any endorsement type of opportunities or engaging in that kind of activity in the United States because that would run afoul of that temporary visa. So once they cross that line, and this is where a number of the e-gamers um, cross that line, where they've tried to come over, Las Vegas, unsurprisingly, is trying to become the home, the global home for e-gaming tournaments. And it makes sense. There's tons of money. Um, and if you look at viewership, especially during COVID, it just skyrocketed. So that that's the next explosive entertainment market, along with gambling. And so Vegas is trying to, you know, marry both of them. They're trying to get all these e-athletes over there. But these e-athletes, these are kids who are, and they're kids. And some of them are just, you know, mid-teens to mid-twenties, and they're making millions of bucks a year in endorsement dollars, let alone their earnings. And so they're not going to want to come over here and forego that endorsement type of opportunity. And and their companies who are sponsoring them are going to want them to participate wearing their gear, right? Because they're, they're streaming on Twitch. You can see them while they're playing. There's supposed to be a walking, talking billboard for those sponsors. And so if you say, well, you can come over and you can compete in a tournament, but you can't do any of your sponsorship activity, you're right away going to knock out some of the very best and brightest in that sport.
0: Why do you think there are so many kind of problems and hangups in this area? I mean, it seems like an area of immigration policy where everyone would kind of be on the same side of saying... This is unproblematic, especially because, you know, you have so many really big businesses out there, both the teams. And as you say, the endorsers who are like, this is a winning business proposition for us. We want these people in, in the country. Why the hurdles?
1: That's a good question. And I don't want to be too cynical in my answer, but I'll probably tend to that direction regardless. Part of it is just apathy. Apathy. And then part of it is there are a whole host of immigration issues that people on both sides would like to discuss. And and they, they have a lot of energy and zeal towards the issues that they would like to discuss. And this one's kind of neither fish nor fowl, right? It's a relatively benign issue. It's not going to generate a lot of controversy. The Compete Act itself, which expanded the scope of the P visa to sort of the athlete and their, their entourage as well, was relatively... Uh, a non-issue when it when it came and went. But it's all a question of, of political will and political capital and what's going to get done when, right? There are a lot of issues going on just have to turn on the news and, or Google immigration, and you can see a whole host of issues regarding refugee status, unaccompanied minors, border issues, enforcement, deportation levels, all sorts of things that are probably higher up the priority, the totem pole for most people rather than well, we should really increase the number of foreign golfers or tennis players here in the country, even though there, you know, in my opinion, there's certainly uh, plenty of of good reasons, economic reasons, especially to go ahead and do so.
0: Well, so David, in closing, I kind of wonder, like if the Biden administration came to you and said, look, we want to sort of improve this particular area of of immigration policy. We want to streamline these problems. The Trump administration didn't do a great job of figuring out how to manage uh, athletes, foreign athletes coming to the United States. We want to fix it. We want to make it better. What would you tell them?
1: So probably three things. The first thing I would say is simply just in terms of how you're adjudicating these cases, just go back to the typical standard and level of scrutiny that you were using four years ago. Right, right off the bat, just let practitioners and the athletes know what type of standard am I, am I supposed to meet and what kind of evidence will suffice or not. Just to make sure that people know and what to expect when they're when they're filling out these files and, and trying to carry out these cases. That would be a, a good first. Uh, second one I would say is starting with presumptions. Maybe looking at the type of evidence differently. Right now there's a, there's a whole list of things and you're. You're supposed to satisfy three or four of the categories depending on what you're you're applying for, but none of them are dispositive. I would think that I would give more weight to an an actual contract or a certain type of invitation as being more probative of the level of the individual involved. Third, when it comes to these college athletes, there's not a really good non-immigrant visa for them that will let them study and do everything and get paid from NIL the way we currently have our system. So I would go through, most likely amend the regulations regarding student employment under the F visa to make it so that these student athletes can, in fact, earn money based on their name, image, and likeness. As, as you said, they're, they're not really competing against anybody else for their own intellectual property rights, and just to let them have an equal playing ground. Because I think otherwise, we're going to run into an issue where we, where we do have unintended consequences, and we'll see very quickly foreign athletes deciding to engage or go in other directions. And then lastly, I don't know whether or not e-gaming is a sport or not, or whether or not these individuals are athletes or not. They, they certainly have phenomenal hand-eye coordination and reflexes and timing uh, beyond anything that, that I currently possess. But honestly, I, I don't really care if it's classified as a, as a sport. or or whether or not they're athletes or not, they're providing a lot of entertainment value and economic value. And that value is going to go somewhere. So we can either foster a system that's going to encourage it to come here, which is going to be a net boon for everybody, or we can foster a system that's going to make it more difficult for that to happen. And then anytime you increase the transaction cost, you make an alternative look better. And that's where we find ourselves. So I would, to the extent it's permissible and, and the Obama administration had gone in this direction, and started to grant P visas, which are for athletes, to some of these e-gamers. I would follow that path just because I see a whole lot of good. And honestly, I see almost zero bad
0: from going down that direction. Awesome. Well, David, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It was a really fun conversation. And I learned a lot about both uh, sports and immigration policy, which aren't usually two tastes that I think uh, going together all the time.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's been a lot of fun, it's a pleasure. So I hope we can chat again sometime in the future.
2: There's no place to hide in takes you to Munich, where we're standing by to interview the wily baseball manager, Otto von Stengel. How long have you been managing a baseball team, Otto? Well, this is my 62nd season with the Munich Mugwumps. And you've won the pennant how many times? Never. Never won? Novio is always come in second. Well, how many teams in the league out there? Two. The Munich Mugwumps and the Dusseldorf Dodgers. No attendance in Dusseldorf. They may have to move over to Hamburg and call themselves the Hamburgers. What about Frankfurt? Frankfurters. Why is it you've never won? Well, it's a psychological reason there. The crowd is always rooting for the underdogs, right? We don't want to have everybody against us. We're very sensitive that way. We concentrate on morale. That's the big factor. Keep everybody happy, lose. Get out there and lose. That's what I tell them before every game. I see. You have loyal fans, do you? Loyal fans? Holy smokes. We had a fella hasn't missed a game in 25 years. Karl-Heinz Hochzeit. He sits along the first base line with the Brautwurst, one of them giant salamis. What for? If someone on the other team gets a hit, he lassos him with 68 yards of Brautwurst. This she'll never forget. By the time he is up on his feet, he is out. Whip that ball around the infield there and let's play ball. Little Pepper in there. Able boy, get out under those fungos out there. Isn't that considered interference with the play? Well, it's all according if it's on our own home grounds, we get away with it. But in foreign territory, nine-nine. Nine men on the team, you know You have any other loyal fans? Oh, let's see, there's... Uh, I'm sure we got more than one. Oh yes, there's Cowbell Henny Rings a cowbell, does she? No, we just call her Cowbell Henny She's got more of a liberty bell meter Cracked I'll say she's cracked Then there's Heinrich, the pinch-hitter-hater Every day he kills another pinch-hitter He hates pinch-hitters Well, how does he kill them? He pinches them to death I see also, he hates right-handed pitchers. We got more lefties on our club than any other team in disorganized ball. Also, he cannot stand anybody stealing a base. He says it's crooked baseball. He got rid of so many base runners last season, we had to use dummies. Dummies? Dummies! When a man got a hit, we put a dummy on the base. And if the next fella got a hit, we move him up one. You know, like chess. We checkmated the Carlsbad Cardinals six straight one year. One good thing about dummies, if you spike them, they don't feel it. No injuries that way. A team of dummies is what I always wanted. A whole team of dummies. <laughs> Those injuries will plague you, verste? Also, he hates umpires, that Heinrich. Oh, he cannot stand them, bootle. Here today he hit an umpire so hard on the head, the poor old Arbiter sunk into the ground four or five feet, arms and tall. Couldn't call any of his plays that way. You need your arms, you know. Strike! Right arm, right ball! Left arm, you get it? I get it, so what did he do? They do? Well, he called them with his eyes. First time that has been done in baseball history. Well, how do you mean? Eyes left, ball. Eyes right, strike. And if it was doubtful, he made cock eyes. When do you plan to retire, Otto? Well, as soon as we start winning, when everyone starts to hate us and hoot against us, I guess I'll throw my cleats in. Suppose they won't let you quit. Well, as soon as we start winning, I'll trade the whole team in, get a good lousy ball club, and I'll stick around. So long. Play ball and get out under those fungos there! Let's get out under those fungos there!